Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Deceptively Simple, Deeply Subversive, John the Baptist, Politics and Religion. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, July 12, 2009. For about a thousand years, from Moses to Malachi, God spoke to his people by sending them prophets. After Malachi, there was a 450-year prophetic silence, a silence that was finally broken with the first prophet of the New Testament period, John the Baptist. The Gospels record at least three distinct references to John the Baptist as the forerunner who was prophesied in Malachi 3, verses 1 to 4 to prepare the way for the Lord. Luke pinpoints the time and place when the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius of Caesar, <coughs> dates his story to about the year 26 A.D. Luke also provides some additional political in religious commentary. He says that the word of God came to John the Baptist when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria in Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. And so, after naming Rome's political powers, both great and small, Luke then identifies Jerusalem's religious powers. The story, says Luke, takes place during the reign of high, during the high priesthood of Annas and his successor Caiaphas. These incidental details hint at a major theme in the story of Jesus. The word of the Lord through John the Baptist did not come from Rome's imperial government or from Israel's religious establishment in the temple. It did not come from someone dressed in fashionable clothes who lived in an expensive palace, said Jesus, Luke 7.25. Nor, we might add, in modern parlance, from a business boardroom, a university laboratory, a ski lab, or a power lunch. No, God's word to all humanity came from a wild and woolly man who lived in the deep of the desert, on the fringes of society rather than in its quarters of power, at the periphery rather than at the epicenter. The divine messenger in his message originated in an unlikely place and from an improbable source. John would have been easy to ignore if you expected or wanted something normal, safe, and traditional. Neither John nor his message was normal by any stretch of the imagination. Some scholars think that John the Baptist was part of the apocalyptic Jewish sect of Essenes who opposed the temple in Jerusalem. At least this much is clear. John the baptizer was a prophet of radical descent. His detractors said that he had a demon, Luke 7.33. 
In the end, he paid the ultimate price for faithfulness to his prophetic calling. Whereas John's father had been part of the religious establishment as a priest in the Jerusalem temple, John fled the comforts and corruptions of the city for the loneliness of the desert. There he dressed in animal skins, ate insects and wild honey, and preached. Living on the margins of society, both literally and figuratively, Mark 1.4 says that he preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Marcus Borg describes John's message as one of both indictment and invitation. Contrary to what we might have expected from such an ascetic man with an austere message, the Gospels say that people flocked to John. Mark 1.5 The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to John. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Even in far away Ephesus, people submitted to the baptism of John. Acts 19.3 People needed to repent, said John, because with Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is near. Matthew 3.2 This is the exact same message that Jesus himself preached when he began his own public ministry. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Matthew 4.17 it's also the exact same message that Jesus instructed his followers to proclaim. Matthew 10:7. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. In Jesus, God's reign and rule has arrived. Jesus' enemies rightly concluded that if Jesus was a king, a lord, and a ruler, who reigned over a realm, then he clearly usurped and upstaged the government in Rome and the temple in Jerusalem. The new kingdom in Jesus clashed with the old powers of politics and religion. The kingdom of God that Jesus announced and embodied is what life would be like on earth, says Marcus Borg, here and now, if God were king and the rulers of the world were not. Imagine if God ruled the nations and not Barack Obama, Kim Jong-il, Mugabe, or Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. Every aspect of personal and communal life would experience a radical reversal. The political, economic, and social subversions would be almost endless. Peacemaking instead of warmongering liberation, not exploitation, sacrifice rather than subjugation, mercy, not vengeance, care for the vulnerable instead of privileges for the powerful, generosity instead of greed, humility rather than hubris, embrace rather than exclusion. The Hebrews had a marvelous word for all of this, shalom, human well-being. 
Interest into this new kingdom requires a countercultural choice. John the Baptist, Jesus, and his first followers all invite each one of us today. Repent, confess, and believe that in Jesus, God's kingdom has arrived. That's the narrow way to the good news. John the Baptist urged his listeners to prove their spiritual intentions by concrete deeds rather than by claims of religious or political affiliation. Some people among the crowds took John at his word, but neither the political powers in Rome nor the religious establishment in the temple did. To their credit, they understood that his message was not only deceptively simple, it was deeply subversive. And so, about six months after John emerged from the desert like some scraggly lunatic and baptized Jesus in the Jordan River, he was beheaded at the whim of Herod the Tetrarch. At a dinner party one night, Herod capitulated to the sadistic demand of his girlfriend's daughter. John was a forerunner of Jesus, but he was also a fourth teller to Herod having rebuked Herod for sleeping with his brother's wife. But as with many perverse politicians, Herod had his way with him, who had spoken truth to power. And so John was decapitated. Mark six fourteen to 29 As for the religious establishment, Jesus tells us that the Pharisees and the experts in the law spurned John's call to baptismal repentance, and in so doing, Luke 7.30, they rejected God's purpose for themselves. The prophetic word of God from John the Baptist then did not originate with the state powers or the religious establishment, nor did it find a receptive audience with them. The claim of God's kingdom upon my life, John preached, is ultimate. That means that the claims of the state and of religious establishments, and by extension the claims of race, gender, culture, and money, all are at best penultimate. The earliest and most radical Christian confession was very simple. Jesus is Lord. By direct implication, Caesar is not Lord or not God, and neither are all the many other false gods of religion, money, sex, and power. With his pronouncement and then martyrdom, John the Baptist counsels us to turn away from anything and everything that hinders ultimate allegiance to Jesus. He invites us to make our crooked ways straight, to flatten all hilly terrain, and to prepare space for the birth of the Messiah into our own lives. When we do that, we'll find ourselves in the truly good news that subverts and transcends all politics and religion. And now for further reflection. Compare a similar clash between the prophet Amos 
the priest Amaziah, and the king Jeroboam. In the alternate reading this week from Amos chapter 7, 7 to 15. I actually have an essay on this in our archives at Journey with Jesus. I call my essay on the Amos 7 text, The Prophet Amos to the Priest Amaziah. Stop pimping religion for political empire. For books this week, I reviewed Daniel James Brown, The Indifferent Stars Above, The Harrowing Saga of a Donner Party Bride. New York, HarperCollins, 2009, 337 pages. Sarah Graves was only 21 years old when she married J. Fosdick on April 2, 1846. Ten days later, on April 12th, she left her home in Illinois with her husband and family of 13 people and joined about 2,000 other immigrants who traveled that spring and summer to Oregon and California. Daniel Brown reconstructs this famous story primarily through the eyes of young Sarah Graves and her family. It would be almost exactly one year later April 17, 1847, that the last of four relief parties reached a lone survivor of the so-called Donner Party. The Graves Party joined with George and Tamzine Donner, along with James and Margaret Reed, who left Independence, Missouri with a group of 50 wagons and 150 adults on May the 12th. Loaded with children, livestock, and provisions, and lumbering along at two miles an hour, the 2,000-mile trip normally took about six months. After they crossed the Continental Divide and turned left to take the so-called Hastings Cutoff instead of the tried-and-true path to the right, the travelers coalesced into what became known as the Donner Party. This fatal mistake cost them an extra month of travel time, and virtually assured that the Donner Party would meet disaster in the snowy Sierras of California. There was nothing remarkable about the Donner Party's sojourn to California, which interestingly at that time still belonged to Mexico. The first wagon train west left in 1841. Rather, they were merely part of a massive migration over the next two decades that saw 250,000 people cross the continent. The outcome of their trip, though, and the sensationalist reporting about it, make the Donner Party some of the most famous and carefully studied of the early pioneers. Only one or two miles from summiting the Sierra Nevada mountain range onto a downward slope just 100 miles from their destination, a ferocious November snowstorm buried them in a frigid prison. Thanks to the diaries, journals, letters, and conflicting memories of the survivors, and later work by historians and archaeologists, today we have a good idea of exactly what happened. Eighty-seven people were trapped for four months in snows up to 20 feet deep, 
at an elevation of 6,000 feet. Forty-five people survived, partly because of their decision to eat their dogs, boiled rawhide, and even their own dead. They also survived thanks to the bravery of four separate rescue parties. Initial reports caricatured the Donner Party as ghouls because of their cannibalism, or dupes due to their poor choices and lack of experience. Daniel Brown rejects these interpretations. In his empathetic retelling, these were ordinary people who were heroic in the sense that they chose hope and the will to survive over the indifferent stars above, a line that comes from a poem by Yeats. Today, a National Historic Landmark, State Park, memorials, towns, and a lake all commemorate this survival adventure with the Donner name. Interested readers will also enjoy the recently released book called Desperate Passage, 2008, which is also about the Donner tragedy. The author is Daniel James Brown. The book, The Indifferent Stars Above, The Harrowing Saga of a Donner Party Bride. For film this week, I review a film called Ben X. It's a film from Belgium. Ben is a deeply disturbed teenager with severe Asperger's syndrome. There was always something wrong with me, he says. He's a loner in the real world who loses himself as a gamer in the online virtual world. His teachers are empathetic but stymied. Doctors have their theories but offer no genuine help. Ben's distraught parents are beside themselves. Much of this film is about the harassment and humiliation that Ben receives at school. When one of these despicable episodes is filmed with a cell phone and then uploaded to the internet, Ben decides to get revenge and plots his endgame. His online virtual friend, a young girl named Scarlight, insists upon helping him as his so-called healer. And so they meet in real life. Every night you pray to God that things will work out and be okay, laments the father. The improbable end of this film suggests that Ben's problem is not so much a problem for him, but a problem for and even caused by other people who won't accept Ben for who he is. Ben X was Belgium's entry for Best Foreign Film at the 2008 Academy Awards. The film is in Flemish, with English subtitles. Ben X, from the year 2008. And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted a poem by Maya Angelou. Maya Angelou was born in 1928. This very short film, this very short poem, so powerful is simply called Alone.
Lying. Thinking last night how to find my soul a home where water is not thirsty and bread loaf is not stone. I came up with one thing and I don't believe I'm wrong that nobody but nobody can make it out here alone. Alone, all alone, nobody but nobody can make it out here alone. Maya Angelou, the title of the poem, Alone. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, July 12th, 2009. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.